wonderful gift we have, uh, even more so in the Word of God. And so let's read uh, Mark 13, 14 through 23 is where our sermon text is going to be. You can see on the screen behind me, I believe. And uh, let me read it to you. Jesus said this, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all this beforehand. This is the word of God. You can be seated. titled the message this morning, Where Do We Flee? Where Do We Flee is the title this morning, and I've um, titled it that way, as you see, because the text talks about flee to the mountains, go away when there's this trouble, go away from the city. We will tend to flee somewhere when we face trouble. When you and I face a trial, when you and I are in danger even when you and I just have something bad happen to us during the day, we all flee to something. We flee to a place of comfort. There's something in our head that we will usually default to as, this is my safe spot. I know if I have this, I'll be happy. Or I know if I'm in this location, I'll be fine. We all flee to something, don't we? Well, this message is, of course, not just about you and I, because Jesus isn't speaking to you and I in this text necessarily. He is speaking to the disciples. This is part of a long discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse. How did it start? Well, as you recall, the 12 were in the temple and they were walking around and they said, look, Lord, what marvelous buildings, how wonderful they are. And Jesus responds and says, you see all these beautiful buildings? All these beautiful stones, not one of them will be left upon another that will not be thrown down and destroyed, which prompts them to ask the question, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And the rest of this chapter, the Olivet Discourse, as it's been called, is Jesus' response. And so we're working through that response, and here we just have even more of it today. So let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom, to give us insight to see these truths that he has for us. Will you bow with me? Father, we need your help to rightly divide the word of truth, to handle it rightly, to respond to it rightly. And so, Father, I pray that you would please give us wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would use the text this morning to continue to build us up, to build up the church, but I pray that he would also use it to draw sinners 
to himself, Father, I pray that you would save sinners. Lord, if, if there's even one in here who does not yet know you, who has not renounced his or her sin and put all of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that you would use the sermon this morning even to do that. I pray that you would even use a sermon about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, even that Things like this, Lord, to draw sinners to yourself. We love you. We look forward to hearing and learning about this truth even more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as you recall from last time, Jesus had been telling his followers what they can expect as these things draw near. As it gets closer to the time for Jerusalem to be destroyed, for the temple to be torn down, he says, you can expect all these things. If you missed last week's sermon, please go back and listen to it, because I pray, with God's help, it was beneficial and would help all of us to be prepared. And I want to continue on here with a portion that's been, to say the least, confusing to a lot of people. And I think if we just keep it in its context to where it is, it'll clear it up so much for you. Jesus starts off by saying this now in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Before we go any farther, Matthew and Luke also record this Olivet Discourse. So I wanted to bring their portions in as we're looking at verse 14, to see what did they record for this exact phrase? What did they have to say as well? Because, thank the Lord, they give us a bit more information. So when we put all those pieces into our equation, it's going to really clear things up so much. So as you see on the slide behind me, our text is at the top there in black. So what did Matthew add to it? Well, Matthew adds the part where he's, it says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, Okay, that's helpful too. And then Luke gives us even more. Luke says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Okay, same word there, desolation. All three of the texts actually use that word. Matthew tells us, Daniel also spoke about this, and it has to do with someone standing in the holy place. And then, thankfully, Luke also tells us, and this has to do with armies surrounding it and it being desolate. All right. So let's go to Daniel then, since Jesus references Daniel. Let's go to Daniel and see, can he shed some more light on this? Because what is this abomination of desolation? I'm telling you right now, I know you've heard a lot of different sermons that tell you probably a lot of different things about what this is. And again, I'm trying to, trying to teach you how to let the text speak for itself within its own context, within an even broader context of, of entire books, instead of taking a prepackaged end times view that someone has told you, this is the way, and then you forcing it onto it and trying to make it fit. Let's just let the text talk. Let's just let the text speak without bringing all these presuppositions. Oh, well, I know the abomination of desolation is obviously this because this pastor told me it's about the Antichrist 2,000 years from now. Perhaps, who knows? Is it? Why don't we just 
Why don't we just read the Bible and see? So that's all I'm trying to get us to do. All right, so if we go to Daniel, Jesus said, he talks about it, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Let's see what he has to say. Daniel 9 is where we're going to be. Daniel 9, verses 25 through 27 is where this comes up. What's the context here? Daniel, where is he? Babylon. Why is he there? Because the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem and took a lot of people captive and brought them back and held them. Why? Why did that happen? Well, because the Lord God said it would happen when his people continued to disobey him and disobey him. He said, I'll raise up a nation to come and invade you if you don't turn back to me. They didn't turn back to them. You might know that the kingdom at that time was split in two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Assyrians came in and took away the northern kingdom in the year 722 B.C., That happened a little quicker because they were more evil. They were more wicked. The Babylonians came and took away the southern kingdom. The final phase of it happened in 586 B.C. That took a little longer. Why? Well, because the southern kingdom wasn't quite as bad, and so God delayed their punishment a bit longer, but still. And so that's why Daniel's here. And so when he's here in Babylon, at this point, Jerusalem's still destroyed, Solomon's temple is still destroyed. So that's where he is. And he receives this vision, this truth from an angel. The angel Gabriel actually actually gives it to him. And so let's see what he says. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there, will, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. There's our word. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the the creed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, so there's our words, abomination, desolate, desolations. So when Jesus says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, this is what he's referring to. Now, (laughs) we don't have time to discuss all the the weeks and what they stand for, plus it is a very debated topic and a very involved topic. So let's look at what's clear. What is clear from Daniel then? Well, it is clear from Daniel, what we just saw, that the holy city and its sanctuary, the, the temple, are going to be rebuilt, but also that they're going to be destroyed. As you saw there from Daniel, it said... And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city, Jerusalem, sanctuary, the temple. So that's that's clear from this text. So it's going to be the holy city and its sanctuary is going to be destroyed. And then verse, and then the, the second point that we can learn from this on the wing of these abominations, what abominations? Well, the destruction of the city and the temple, comes one who makes desolate, it says. 
I think we make this prophecy from Daniel way more complicated than it has to be, first of all. If we put Jesus' words together, what he said from Mark, Matthew, and John, what we already saw, I mean uh, Luke rather, and put all those together with what we see from Daniel, I think the abomination of desolation is simply understood as the destruction of the holy city and the holy temple. Why do I think that? Well, it's an, it's an abomination to enter into the temple, first of all, even in an unworthy manner. You know, the, the Levites, the priests, they were the only ones who could even enter into it. You know that, right? Into the holy place. It's, you've got a holy place here, and then the most holy place. Even just to enter into the holy place, you know this. You've got to be a Levite. You had to be wearing certain garments. You had to even wash your hands a certain way before even going in. And that's if you did all those things, and if you were a Levite. So to even go in the place as pagan Gentiles just waltzing in there for the purpose not of worship, but for the purpose of destruction, standing even in the holy place and destroying and dismantling the the holy artifacts in there, that's an abomination, a huge abomination. An abomination that led to the temple being desolate. That was the abomination that causes desolation, the destruction of the holy place by pagan Gentiles. I really believe that because, first of all, in our text, let's pull our text back up um, in Mark um, 13, 14. He says, but when you see the abomination of of desolation standing where he ought not to be, where he uses a singular masculine pronoun. So he's talking about a person, a person being in that holy place. It's pagan, probably Titus, maybe even just one of the, one of the Roman soldiers. I don't know, but it's a, a person and making it desolate and doing abominable things. I think it's really when you put all three of those together and just look at Daniel's text at face value, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. I really don't. We make it so very complicated. So we see Jesus is still on the same topic he's been on since the start of his answer. Remember, this is one long answer to the disciples' question of when will these things be and what's the sign that these things are about to take place? That's, this is all an answer to that question. Why am I laboring this point? Because if you just read the text, if you just read it, you will not pull out of it. You know, maybe Jesus, in one breath, is talking about what they're going to see, and then maybe in the very next breath, he's talking about something that's going to happen thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. Why would you think that unless you already had that thought put in your head? That's a presupposition that you bring to the text. If you just read the text, like if I just gave this to a child who knew nothing about all these end times views and said, read this, who's Jesus talking to? Well, he's talking to the disciples. And when he says, you'll see this and you should watch out for this, who do you think he's talking to? The disciples. Okay. And when he says, these things are going to take place and you're going to see them and when they take place, you should go to this place. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking to? Well, the the disciples. 
Exactly. Some of you may not have been in camps where you've been told anything different from what I'm telling you, and you're thinking, he keeps talking about this. I'm, it's because you're going to be, you're going to hear things, and I'm just saying, how about we just let the Bible speak? And I'm telling you, maybe you believe this means something else because someone told you it means something else. And I just want my people, I just want my people at Christ Fellowship, people under my care, my flock, I want my people in my flock to take the Bible for themselves and feed themselves. That's all I'm trying to make, is people who actually wrestle with the text and let it speak. And it speaks boldly and loud and solid and true. And let's let it do that. Let's just let it ring true and loud. So Jesus is just continuing to answer their same question. The question that was prompted after Jesus told them that this temple that they were admiring was going to be destroyed. Now the rest of the section, the rest of verse 14 all the way through 23, they have to do with Jesus preparing them for that time. Jesus prepares them for this time that's coming. Jesus tells them exactly what they need to do and also what they do not need to do. He's going to say, do this, but, but don't do this. So let's get into that. The rest of verse 14 through verse 16. Let's look at that. The rest of verse 14 all the way through verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Natural human instinct is to run where you feel the safest. It is. Run to where you feel the safest. If something bad happens to you in your mind, maybe you run somewhere and that makes you feel safe. Like for example, if your boss says, hey, I'd like you to come into the office. Yes, sir, here I am. And he says, you're fired. You might freak out if you don't have very much money in your bank account. But if you still had a hundred grand in your bank account, and he says, you're fired. Immediately, you try to then handle that shock. And so you then go to things that are going to help you handle that shock. You know what your mind would probably go to? No problem. I got a hundred grand. I got a cushion until I find another job. Some of you, boss says, you're fired. Your place of help is, well, thank the Lord. I've got a rich mommy and daddy. And surely they'll let me borrow some money or something. We all sort of go to somewhere in our minds when we get some bad news. Even you and I, if we get news from a doctor, you have, I need you to sit down. Listen, your test came back. You got about two weeks. You know what I would go to in my head? Well, first of all, I would be scared for my family, of course, but you know what I would go to in my head? But my sins are forgiven. And I'm going to be with Jesus in like two weeks. (laughs) That's what I would go to. See, that helps me when I hear all this horrible news. I flee. We all flee somewhere when we get horrible news. A safe place. Somewhere that helps us cope. Natural human instinct is to run where you feel the safest. And that day, at that time, a fortified city was the safest place to be when an invading army was coming upon you. A fortified city was your safe place. <gasps> There's an army coming. 
Okay, how am I going to get through this shock in my brain? Oh, we have a fortified city. That massively thick and incredibly high wall provided security for almost anything an army could launch against you. Also, the city would have been supplied with resources, food, water, weapons, shelter. But what does Jesus say to them? What does Jesus say to them? We've got to understand that Jesus' command here would have been so very contrary to their natural instinct when hearing and seeing an invading army. They would have defaulted to, let's go into the city. Jerusalem has these massive walls. It is fortified. Herod really beefed it up. When Herod started um, restoring the temple, making it even better, he beefed it up big time. And just Jesus say, when you hear of all these things happening, flee to the mountains. Let no one who's on the housetop go down or enter his house or take anything out. Let one who's in the field not even go back into the city to get his coat. He says, don't go into the city. Go away from the city. Flee into the mountains, their brains would have been screaming at them to do the most logical thing in order to save their own lives. Run to safety. That's where their brains would have defaulted to. Instead, Jesus is forcing them. Listen to this. Listen closely. Jesus is forcing them to trust his word and not their own understanding. It seems like we've got a proverb burned in our brain that says the same thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. I know that's not a first time for any of you in here to hear that one. Jesus is just putting this into practice for them. Do what I'm telling you to do, not what your natural instinct is going to tell you to do. Just like the early Christians facing a horrible calamity, listen, you and I have to do the same thing even in our much smaller sufferings. It's not very likely, it's not very likely that uh, some nation is going to invade us. I know, some of you are thinking right now, it's more likely than it was a few years ago. Okay, yes, I get that. But you know what? Even in our smaller sufferings that we go through day to day, we have to obey Jesus and go against our fleshly instinct to preserve self. Whether that be preserving life, whether that be preserving job, or even preserving your own pride and ego when it comes to standing up for Jesus in the workplace or at school, the Word of God is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Our initial fleshly instinct is almost always contrary to what God actually wants for us. Your initial Fleshly instinct is almost always contrary to what God actually wants for you. These early Christians would have to run away from the fortified city. They would want so badly to go in because for them that meant safety, security, hope. And Jesus is saying, I need you to hope in my words instead. 
I need you to obey what I'm telling you instead of what you're so badly going to think is the right way. Do what I'm telling you instead. That's your hope. Let's look now at verses 17 through 20. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. That war between the Jews and the Romans that started in AD 66 was very bad. The Romans laid siege against the holy city for a very, very long time. So long that the people inside that fortified and very well-supplied city ended up dying from starvation. Many, many of them died from starvation. That's how long the Romans laid siege against the holy city. I don't have time to read everything of Josephus that I found. He was the Jewish historian that recorded a lot of what happened during this time when the Romans destroyed the holy city, the temple. But I did find this that I can pull out to make it... um, for, for time reasons. He's talking about when the Romans went in to the city finally, after so many of them were just starved to death, that they could go in and there would be very little opposition. With their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses where the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such that had died by the famine. But they ran everyone through whom they did meet with and obstructed the very lanes with their bodies. That means like the lanes in the street, just piled their bodies up in the street. And made the whole city run down with blood to, the, to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses were quenched with these men's blood. Over a million Jews died when the Romans attacked the holy city. Over a million. This is why Jesus could use language language like he did. I believe some of his language was purposefully embellished to make a point. Like for example when he says Um, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of God's creation until now. Really? Wasn't the entire globe flooded once? (laughs) Like the entire planet flooded? That seems a bit bigger than a, a localized war in a really a small country, actually. I mean... It's not a very big country, Israel. So I think Jesus' words there are, he's trying to make a strong point. I really, I mean, we even see language like this when it comes to judgment language sometimes too, even in the Psalms. In the Psalms, David once said, the Lord came riding down, riding on angels. Really? (laughs) 
who's riding on angels? No. I think this is meant to make a strong point. Like it does, over a million Jews died. The fire was put out by their blood. That was not embellished. He was writing as a historian there, Josephus was. I've got a friend who was a Marine, and he told me about when he was deployed once, and they were outside of a building, and that building uh, got bombed, and it not only had Marines in it, it had some other people that were friendly with him as well, some allies, and he walked in the, he walked in the room, and he thought there was water on the floor. He's like, gosh, where'd all this water come from? And he realized it wasn't water. So this was a horrific time. That's why Jesus used language like this. It was really horrific what happened to the Jews. Jesus not only foretold these events when answering his followers that day, but even after Jesus' triumphal entry, he said this in Luke. This is in Luke 19. I've got a slide for this, of this for you guys. Jesus foretold it even then. This is right after he rides in on the donkey. This is in Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus even foretold them, barricading them in for months and months and months. He even foretold that and exactly what happened. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He entered in that day with praises, but then he also looked at it and he could see not only the present, not only that day when people were saying, Hosanna in the highest. He could look at the holy city and see decades into the future and see what was going to happen to them. And he wept. We think he only wept at Lazarus, uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept here as well because he saw that this would be their end. And this was God's judgment on the Jews who rejected Jesus and therefore rejected the only one who could bring peace between the righteous God, the righteous holy God, and the unrighteous and sinful man. Jesus is the only way for man to be forgiven of his sins. The only way. You have no other place of safety besides Jesus Christ. When it comes to the danger of your sins, where do you flee then? You flee to Jesus Christ. It's the only name given to men, given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. The man Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's taken the punishment for your sins. When he shed his blood, died, and rose again from the dead. Only him. He is your only place of safety. So sinner this morning, Flee to Jesus. Run to the Lord Jesus. He is your place of safety. He is that fortified city. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, the Psalms say. The righteous run into it and are safe.
Those were days of horror, though, and judgment to be sure, but Jesus made sure that his people, his people, he made sure that they would know where to flee and where to flee to avoid that danger. But they had to listen to his word and believe it, didn't they? They had to listen to Jesus' word that day and believe it in order to not fall into that. He said, do not run into the city. It will be destroyed. Its judgment is sure. Let's now look at verses 21 through 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. Wow. Huh. That's interesting, isn't it? False prophets and false Christs will arise and perform signs and wonders. To lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, apparently, these early Christians from 2,000 years ago, they would be doing the same thing I hear many people still doing in our day. What is that? When they hear of horrible things going on in our world, they immediately think, see, Jesus must be coming back any moment because all these horrible things are happening. You and I have heard that a lot, too. We've even seen all these predictions. I remember when we were missionaries in Belize, the world was supposed to end then because of the Mayan calendar was running out. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but we were missionaries to Mayan Indians. And guess what? None of them even knew about the Mayan calendar. It was like if the Mayan calendar was around, it was to sell to the tourists. Let's sell these to the rich white people that are freaking out about everything and make money. And guess what? None of the Mayans were even caring about this. It was just us. Well, not us, but I was hearing on the news. Everybody was freaking out about the end of the world. You've heard. I'm sure you guys have heard. And there's even been books written. The end of the world is going to happen in 1988. The end of the world is going to happen in 89. The end of the, you know, I always have to make a revision because it doesn't happen. There was one group that was predicting the end not too long ago even. It wasn't the Mayan calendar thing. It was something else. My friend actually wrote them because there was some sort of large organization and said the the world's going to end on this day. And he wrote them and he said, since the world's going to end on that day, would you mind signing over to me all the deeds of your property and the titles to all your vehicles? And he did not get a response. But, you know, if they really thought it was going to end, right? So this is what I see, this is what you see, and even here, and I think maybe even we fall into it sometimes, we say, see, things are getting so bad, things are getting so, so bad, Jesus must be coming back at any moment now, because things are so, so bad. And he was telling them, listen, things are going to be so, so bad. And what I'm telling you is, you're going to hear people saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ, because people are going to be expecting, well, things are so, so bad, Jesus must be, you're going to come back any, any moment here, and he says, don't believe them. Don't go after them. Remember, Jesus started this whole thing when the 12 said, when are these things going to be? 
And Jesus answered, starting off saying, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, he said. When things get really bad, and all these people say, I'm the Christ, I'm the Christ. He says, don't be led astray. The end's not yet. You know, Jesus has already told us, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. At an hour you don't expect. If you're seeing all these horrible things and you're like, yep, Jesus is right around the corner. Sounds like you're expecting him. He says, I'm going to come when you don't expect me. That's why we always be ready. So in their hardship, the early church would be desperately looking for a way of escape, namely Jesus himself. It was going to be really hard for them. That's unmistakable. It's going to be really hard for them. And wicked men, and also the wicked one, the devil, was going to capitalize on their fear, try to capitalize on their fear in his deceptive ways. He's going to try to deceive them by getting them to go after someone else who says, I'm the Christ. And the wicked one, along with working with your flesh, loves to capitalize on your fear when you're fearful, loves to capitalize on your exhaustion when you're exhausted and try to get you to compromise. I feel it, don't you? When you're trusting God for something for so, so long, and you think, Maybe we should take a shortcut. Abraham and Sarah did it. Waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Hey, we're not, having a, we're not having a baby. It's been years. Maybe we should try this way. I mean, technically, you know, sort of allowed. Technically. And so, we tend to want to compromise. Get out of our discomfort quickly, don't we? And Jesus knew that was going to happen. The wicked one and also their own, and also wicked men wanted to capitalize on their desperation to get out of their suffering. And that's why we read, even if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is. Don't believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise. And even are going to perform signs and wonders. Where's that coming from? Where are those powers coming from? The wicked one? He says, be on your guard. So instead of being desperate to be freed from the hardship, Jesus tells them to continue to stand guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Be on your guard, he said in verse 23. That's a good word for us as well, isn't it? We only have one shepherd and one leader. And Jesus said about his sheep, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Let me tell you this. It will be easy to detect false Christs and false prophets. How, Cohen? Tell us. Not all their words will align with God's word. Now, I chose my words very carefully. Did you hear what I said? I said, not all their words will align with God's words. I promise you, some of their words will. Some of their words will. Every false prophet I've ever seen on TV is holding a Bible. He or she is holding a Bible and talking about it. That's how I almost got duped when I first became a Christian. I was just, anybody on TV that had a Bible, I was like, yeah, 
Okay. Send, send money to your ministry? Yeah, sure. That's how I'll get blessed? Okay. Here you go. Here's my money. And so not all their words will line up with God's word. Some of them will because that's how the devil works. But a half-truth is a whole lie. Notice how Jesus tells them to be on their guard. Be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Jesus goes back to his word as the authoritative voice. I have told you all these things beforehand. Look at these four bullet points that I've made. Look at these four bullet points that I put up there for you guys. So the early church was being cared for greatly by their shepherd. How? How was Jesus caring for the early church? He told them exactly what would happen to the holy city and the temple. He told them that. I know the text is small. I'm sorry, guys. I had to fit all that into one slide. He told them exactly what would happen to them as the time was approaching. That was last week's sermon. He told them exactly where to go when it started, which would make them depend on his word and not on their natural instincts. And then lastly, he told them how not to be led astray when they were desperate for deliverance from their suffering. So ultimately, the real location, I'm going to end with this, guys. The real location, the real place all of Christ's followers are to flee in times of trouble is to the word of God. Notice, all those points I just mentioned began with, he told them. He told them. He told them. The early church's only hope for real safety, not only from suffering, but even in suffering, was the word of Christ. The early, I'm going to say that again. The early church's only hope for real safety, not only from suffering, but even in suffering, was the word of Christ. It must be believed and obeyed. We show we believe it by actually acting upon it. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? They showed that they were going to believe Jesus' words by actually acting upon his words. And you and I, guess what? We actually show we believe this book by living according to it, don't we? This is to where we flee. This is, this is where we flee in times of trouble. The words of Christ, just like they were supposed to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have safety in your word. Lord, even when things seem very unsafe around us, even when things seem very, things were, were very unsafe for your early church at that time, the temple was about to be destroyed. Millions of people were about to die, but you made provision for your people to be safe because of what you told them. Because of what you told them. Had you not told them, they would have gone to the wrong place. But because they obeyed your voice, the gospel actually spread. They went out from that area and took the truth with them. And thank the Lord they took the truth with them far, far away, as did many other generations, which is why we're here today standing in Alabama on a different continent, still proclaiming this truth 2,000 years later because of your word. 
We thank you for the grace to receive your word and live according to it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.